Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to be a part of our church's gathering, even if only via this podcast. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church, and my hope as we open Scripture is that today your understanding and experience of Jesus' gracious love would grow. God bless you. Okay, if you have a Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we're going to begin reading in verse 9, and I've got a couple of readers who are going to come and read to you this morning. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down. When the grinders cease because there are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim. When the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If you had a time machine that could take you anywhere, where and when would you go? Would it be in recent history? Maybe you just reach back as far as just a few decades to July the 21st of 1969, where you would peer through the circular window of Apollo 11 to watch Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon. Or maybe you'd want to reach further back than that. So November the 19th of 1863, where you'd be able to pull up a chair to listen to Abraham Lincoln as he delivered his famed Gettysburg Address. Maybe all of that's still too modern for you, though, and you'd go instead back to an era of ancient history. Does ancient Athens then intrigue you? A chance to enter the great Acropolis, to see and listen to Plato and Aristotle. For me personally, I think the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders, the seven wonders of the ancient world, sounds like an amazing experience to see and take in. Or what if you could sit down and watch Da Vinci actually paint the Mona Lisa? or Rembrandt paint his famed Return of the Prodigal. Or maybe for you, painting's not your thing. You'd rather hear the Beatles in the 60s. Or maybe you're more of an Elvis in the 50s kind of gal. Or maybe you'd want to visit Rome in the height of its power to watch the gladiators duke it out and gather in the Colosseum. I mean, what would you choose if you had a time machine that could take you anywhere? Where and when would you go? Would you choose a day with Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan? A drink with Caesar, or maybe Joan of Arc. Maybe a rocky hillside with Jesus listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Or if you could go anywhere at any time, would it simply be that you'd sit down with a loved one, a parent or partner who's passed for a cup of coffee one more time? Maybe you've thought about this less whimsically. 
where it's, the question would be instead, well, what if you could just live in any era in human history? When would it be and why? And I don't really know for me if I had the choice of just a day to show up and take my time machine to one place at one time. I don't know where and when I would choose to go, but I will tell you, I do know that if I was making the decision about one generation that I got to live in, not merely a moment in time to visit, I would choose for sure, undoubtedly, at least me personally, I would choose this generation. With all its creature comforts and modern amenities, I mean, it would be fun to visit cave-dwelling people. It would, it would be fun to go and see ancient civilizations, but I enjoy my AC unit and my comfy bed at night. And it might be a, an amazing thing to see Rome in its glory or the Persian Empire in its heyday, but let's be honest, us modern men and women were sent into mass hysteria and senseless stockpiling when we thought something as simple as our toilet paper supply might run low. So living in those ancient cultures for me personally, at least, would not be my first choice. I mean, when you really think about it, modern advances in society and in technology are seemingly used in large part to shield us from decay and to delay and to hide us from the reality of death. I mean, think this through. Our world naturally is in a state of decay, and life in it brings us face to face with the reality and the stench of death which humanity seems determined to hide itself from, and we've actually done a pretty good job in the 21st century. From our well-manicured parks and lawns and gardens to the development of our stucco homes with modern plumbing, sure, we love our creature comforts, but a part of why we love them so much is because they insulate and isolate us from the gloomy and escapable reality of decay and death. According to a poll conducted by the CBS News Network in 2014, which is, as you know, a pre-COVID era, most Americans, 54% of them, said that they didn't spend much time or any time at all thinking about their own death. According to data from the company Statista, just 11% of us consider death in our daily lives, with most of us being clearly so busy with the subject of life, according to these statistics, only considering the subject of death, most of us, just three or four times in a year. In 2022, a survey of Americans was conducted regarding their mental health and thoughts on mortality. Their findings were published under the title of, and I quote, American Attitudes Towards Death in the Time of Coronavirus. Here's what they reported. They reported that more than half of us, 51%, are thinking more about mortality now because of COVID. And yet, most of us, a reported 85% said that they're still not ready to talk about it, though. I might be thinking about it, but I'm not able to converse about it. Statistically speaking, it was younger people who have experienced the biggest shift in their attitude and actions, with more than 60% of millennials responding that they've now started thinking and talking about end-of-life matters. According to this study, the benefits that the Serbian research claimed to be the byproduct of people's awareness of their mortality, the byproduct, the benefit of it, was not a benefit to themselves. It would instead be beneficial to their loved ones, saving them from unnecessary hassle as more and more people have become motivated to put pen to paper with end-of-life directives and plans. You see, the voice of Ecclesiastes strongly disagrees with both that observation 
that thinking of our death only benefits others and not ourselves, and the preacher of Ecclesiastes would strongly disagree with our choice as modern people to insulate and isolate ourselves from the gloomy, inescapable reality of decay and death. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, if you look back a couple of pages, beginning in verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death and the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house to feasting, for that is the end of all men. What is the house of mourning is? And the living will take it to heart. You see, we reverse this because birth, we believe, is worth rejoicing, and death is only accompanied, though, by sorrow. But he's reminding us that birth is just the beginning of a lifelong encounter with sorrow in our sin-splintered, broken world, whereas death provides our only option to ending those sorrows. It's Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that confirms this when it speaks of heaven, saying, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passing away. Chapter 7, the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 3, he says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. He's telling you that laughter may distract us, but it doesn't rescue us from our sorrow nor from our mortality. In verse 4, he says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or partying. Are you hearing him as he warns that a fool fills his life as much as he can with merriment and laughter to distract himself from his mortality while the wise live life in light of their mortality and eternity? Death, he argues, is good for the heart. And it's painful, we would agree, but it's true that spending potentially a single hour over the course of a year in a funeral service can shape and impact your life more positively than two weeks of summer vacation or even a year-long party. It does do something in each of us, shaping our perspective and our life. You see, again and again, though, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he points to and reminds us of the brokenness and the brevity of life under the sun, of certain death that all of us face. It's a reality that we don't like to be confronted with, but it's one that you've noticed like a boxer in a ring. He's going 12 rounds with you, and again and again, he hits you with it. It's chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. It's chapter 3, verse 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to the dust. It's chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to them all. In the context, he's talking about how we can't avoid or escape the suffering that we will endure in life. It's all the same for all of us. But he's saying there's one thing that all of us also share in common. Truly the hearts of the sons of men, he says, are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. The one thing, he says, that happens to all is that all of us die. My friends, we don't need a doctor to tell any of us that we're terminal. We were born with an expiration date. It isn't rocket science. Death and decay are all around us, and they're coming for each of us. It's been wisely said that good health is simply the slowest way a human being can die. But it's still another way that we die. As I mentioned this past Sunday, when we were together, the preaching king from the line of David, that's the voice behind Ecclesiastes, he's now at the point, as he's been searching for the good life, 
where he's ceasing from his efforts to grasp and hang on to it. And what he teaches in the back half of this book are topics either we've already discussed or they become proverbs he pens in light of what we've already discussed. And although I'd encourage you to read through the remainder of it, verse by verse all the way through, we're not going to study it that way. We're going to view it from 30,000 feet instead. Last week, looking at a discussion of trying to make sense of life, and today we discuss trying to make sense of death, with next week being our final week looking at the conclusion he brings. So today we entitle our discussion, Trying to Make Sense of Death. I mean, did you catch the poetic imagery that we just heard as the preacher utilizes these poetic words in the passage we read together? He admonishes us, chapter 12, verse 1, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no more pleasure in them. In other words, as I quoted to you from one of our own here who often tells me, getting old isn't for sissies. That's what he's saying here. But look in verse 3 at the poetic imagery he uses to describe the aging process that all of us will face. He says, in the day when the keepers of the house begin to tremble. Now, the house he's describing is your body. And the keepers of the house are the ones that are active in your body. He's talking about your arms and your hands. And as you get older, they begin to tremble and become unsteady. And the strong men, that's who the house is standing on. It's your legs. He's saying your legs become weak and weary as the strong men bow down. He says, when the grinders cease because they are few. Any guesses of the imagery? your teeth. When the grinders begin to cease because they are few, when your teeth are failing you also. He says, and those that look through the windows, the windows have grown dim. Your vision, your eyesight, it's failing. When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of the grinding is low, he's saying that your hearing is no longer what it used to be. When you rise up at the sound of a bird, apparently neither will your sleep be what it used to be. And all the daughters of music, they're brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of tears in the way. And the older you get, the more you find yourself concerned about the reality and the danger of just a simple fall, a tumble. And then you have a tendency to turn into a bit of a homebody because of that, because there's tears in the way in every direction. He's speaking of when the almond tree blossoms. If you've ever seen an almond tree, there's white blossoms all along the top of it. He's talking about for all of us, well, at least half of us, As you get older, your hair will turn white for the rest of us. It just abandons you. The grasshopper is now a burden and desire fails. He's saying that everything, every task begins to feel burdensome to you. For man is going to his eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets. Oh, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Remember your creator, he's saying. Turn to God, he's saying, before your life and your body breaks down and is shattered and fails on you. Then, verse 7, the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Oh, hebel of hebels, he said, enigma of enigmas, a puff of smoke, something that is there for a moment and gone in the next. That's what your life will feel like. But also like a puff of smoke, it's there, but it can't be grasped. Oh, hebel of hebels, it's all just hebel. It's all a paradox. It's an enigma, he's saying. It's shrouded in mystery. Who can understand this? So let's be honest and clear. None of us are completely comfortable with discussing death. And we are much less comfortable with the looming reality of our own death. And the truth is, there's never a good time to discuss it, because it always confronts us with pain. 
as it reintroduces us to the tremendous loss that so many of us have experienced in life, as loved ones have died, and as we've been forced to find a new normal and move forward in life without them by our side any longer. It's just reminding someone this morning of, I think, what's most difficult about the reality of death and losing someone that you really love and care for, and that's that they don't die once. It can feel as though they die a hundred or even a thousand times. It feels that they die over and over again each time you remember them, each time you instinctively pick up the phone to reach out to them, each time we miss them or long for the opportunity to sit with them. That's what it's like to walk down this hard, difficult path. But for the writer of Ecclesiastes, remember, he's refusing to let us look away from the brokenness in our world with its system glitches. Ecclesiastes, it's serving as a provocator, poking us, he will tell us next week, with a goad to drive us in the right direction. You see, the preacher's goal is not to depress you, it's to free you, to free you. So today, let's consider death together by looking beyond just the preaching king from the line of David that's found in Ecclesiastes and by bringing into frame the second and greater preaching king from the line of David. His name is Jesus. You know, this weekend, for us as a family, one of our kids found a little baby bird that had fallen out of its nest a little bit too soon. His little wings aren't yet ready. He doesn't have enough feathers. And so he just scurries along the street. And we live near a canyon here in Poway with coyotes that we hear each night and owls that fly overhead. And so we were concerned for this poor little baby chick and quickly scooped it up so that we could try to nurse it back to health and then give it enough time for for nature to run its course, for its body to grow and develop the way that it needs to in order for him to move on. And as we took it into our home and have bought some worms and one of my kids is feeding them the worms, you could probably guess who's feeding them. Uh, but there were a lot of tears when the discussion took place yesterday or two days ago when we said that, you know, in the end, if we're successful, this bird leaves us. This is not our new pet. We're not putting this thing in a cage. If we nurse it back to health and it grows like it should, this bird's taken off. We'll never see it again. Tears set in. I said, well, there is another option. It's that it doesn't make it. I said, the bird doesn't grow the way it needs to. Or what we realize is the bird is hurt, and so nature will run its course, and the bird will no longer be with us that way either. At that, one of my other children chimed in and says, I don't want to look at death, though, Dad. It just struck me, probably because I've been studying this and thinking through this, it just struck me that even at the youngest of age, all of us would rather not look at death. But why are we so uncomfortable with death? And why do we fear it so much? I mean, you could say, even if you look at Jesus, that he staggered under the shadow of a cross that represented suffering and eventual death for him. To be human is to die, and seemingly to be human is to not be very comfortable with it. But why are so many crippled by fear over it and refusing to even think or talk about it? So as we try to consider how we could make sense of death, I want to look at three things with you. Three things that are not just true about society, but three things we desperately need Jesus and the rest of Scripture to speak to. And so here's those three things. You see, without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity faces fear over the uncertainty and apparent finality of death. The second thing, humanity finds a black hole and vacuum that then sucks the meaning and purpose out of life. And then the third thing, if there's no certainty about death and eternity, then humanity bears the weight and pain of injustice in our sin-splintered, broken world. I realize I just threw a lot at you. Here we go again. The first thing, 
without any real certainty about death and eternity, what humanity does, and you've observed it as well as I have, is humanity faces fear over the uncertainty and apparent finality of death. All we see is an end in a grave, and it makes us tremble. But let me come right out and say that the voice of Ecclesiastes is forcing you to face humanity's elephant in the room and the resurrection of Jesus provides the answer to humanity's elephant in the room. My friends, one of the reasons that Easter is so central and significant in the Christian message is because Easter addresses humanity's elephant in the room, the thing that we all see and know is present and yet none of us want to address the one inescapable reality that none of us are comfortable even talking about. A French writer in the 1600s famously said, neither the sun nor death can be looked at steadily. You see, death is an inescapable reality that none of us are comfortable with, and a global pandemic served as an unwelcome reminder for all of the globe of that reality. It was Woody Allen who was quoted as saying, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. There's an ancient Greek writer who said, his name was Sophocles, he said, not even old age knows how to love death. And if you like that quote on Amazon, you can buy it as a magnet for your refrigerator. So each morning as you sip your coffee, you can be reminded of that very thing. And here, the voice of Ecclesiastes is declaring that death is an enigma. It's a mystery. And he is asking the question, well, who can tell us with certainty what to expect? Jesus alone emerges having the authority to speak about the afterlife because Jesus not only lived and died, it's that he returned and told us what we can know with certainty. Oh, life and death are illusions, said one famed storyteller and filmmaker, whereas Jesus said death is the enemy. Socrates is credited with the quote that death may be the greatest of all human blessings, whereas Jesus says it is the work of the devil and the consequence of sin, that sin brought death, and death is unnatural for us. Ironically, Robin Williams, while playing the role of Peter Pan, infamously said, to die would be a grand adventure, whereas Jesus says to die is the byproduct of our rebellion against God. Hear me say that the voice of Ecclesiastes is foreseeing us to face humanity's elephant in the room, and that the resurrection of Jesus provides the answer for humanity's elephant in the room. I mean, think even of how Jesus spoke of death. Mark's gospel in the fifth chapter records the story of Jesus being approached by a prominent man in the Jewish synagogue. His name is Jairus, and he has a daughter who's sick and who ends up dying. And in the midst of the mourning and the chaos that Jesus arrives to be greeted with as he comes to see the little girl, you remember that Jesus tells her father, do not be afraid, only believe. And then Jesus looks at the mourners who gathered, and he says to them, why is it that you make all this commotion and you weep, for she is not dead, she is only sleeping. The problem was she was in fact dead, and Jesus wasn't confused. He was purposefully communicating something that future New Testament authors would pick up on, something that Jesus would say even more times than just this one moment. In fact, it's something you see Jesus say several times in the Gospels, that he will use sleep in reference to death. And it was a way for him to challenge the way the culture thought of death. He's saying that it's not the end. It's like a night's sleep. There's more afterwards. You wake up again is the ideal. Whereas the prevailing thought of the unorthodox who are outside of orthodox Judaism, they just thought that death was the end, the grand curtain call. 
But for the Orthodox, like this leader of the synagogue, they believed in the resurrection of the dead and life after death. And Jesus is showing them here that he is the key to the afterlife, that he holds the power over it and the power to access it. In John 11, he said it this way, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? Jesus used sleep in reference to death to teach us that death is not the end, nor is it the enemy of the Christian. A wasted life is. You don't have to fear death any more than someone should fear sleeping because there is no unknown because Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus can change your destiny in death, and by doing that, he changes then your view of death, that it's no longer something that has to be feared. Think not only of how Jesus spoke of death, but remember how Jesus spoke and faced his own death. In Luke 23, verse 46, it says, And Jesus on the cross cries out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. These were Jesus' final words from the cross. That final statement was a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5, written by the ancient King David, as an expression of trust, after praying, God, protect me and deliver me, then he expresses his trust. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth, David penned. Historians tell us that this was quoted in pious Jewish households, that it was recited each evening by young Hebrew children as they'd climb into bed at night. This was their nighttime prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. So if that's true, what we find then is that Jesus dies like a child falling asleep in his father's arms. As Jesus took his dying breath, his final words were the words of a simple prayer. He learned at his bedside as just a young child. What Jesus is expressing is absolute trust, complete confidence. What I'm telling you is that Jesus is facing death the way that he had faced bedtime since being just a little boy. The very way that Jesus had very well could have faced bedtime each night as a young boy. I think not only of how Jesus spoke of death or even how Jesus spoke at his own death, but realize today that we too can face death as Jesus did. Most polls, and you can find so many of them globally as they're, as they're done all around the world, most of them will bring up the two greatest fears of society, of humanity, regardless of culture or where you're at. The two greatest fears we have are public speaking and death. And it's really not surprising, though, is it? As a follower of Jesus, though, who's received forgiveness and rescue because of his sacrifice at the cross and resurrection from the dead, I should view death like Jesus did. Not as something that needs to be feared anything more than I'd fear sleeping. My friends, I don't need to fear the possibility of death because of God's power to protect me and care for me. And I don't have to fear the reality of death because Jesus has completed the work that was needed to be done to rescue me so that what I see in eternity is the loving embrace of a father who's embracing a wayward son because Jesus took my place as the rebellious one who is deserving judgment and I received then in exchange his place, a place of right standing with the father called his beloved son. It's been said that God does not promise a calm passage through the pathway of death, but that he does promise a safe landing. 
You may not be able to be certain of how you will pass, neither will I. But you can be certain of where you will be arriving, which is far more important in the end. You arrive in the arms of the one who promised that if trusted in life, he will be there to receive you and greet you and embrace you in the hour of your death. Do you know that because of the way that Jesus both spoke of death and faced death, that the early church, historians tell us, used to simply say to one another, good night, rather than goodbye, as the Christian would die and enter into eternity. Because they had confidence that it was never really a goodbye, that it was not the end. For the person that quote-unquote passes away would simply close their eyes in this life and open them in the next, free from the pain and the brokenness they've experienced in this life, now entering into glory with God himself. That's my own confidence. It was just a few months ago when Carol Bruton, a wonderful dear lady and saint, a part of our church, as her health declined so rapidly from the disease that she was facing, that it became very clear that she had reached death's door. There were a few people from our church that sat with her that day, and I got to sit with them as well. And this was the final comment that was made to Carol. Was not goodbye and was explained, this is not a goodbye, this is just a good night. Because we know that we will see you again and that we will walk again together. It's never goodbye, it's simply good night. Luke 23, again, Jesus, when he cries out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is not just how faith prays in death. This is how faith can pray in the dark. My friends, this statement by Jesus is inviting us to choose faith today in the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Choose faith today, not in some distant God, but in a loving and present heavenly Father Choose to daily surrender your life to him, praying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Tolstoy, in his little book, A Confession, observed that faith gives life meaning that even death cannot destroy. You see, without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity faces fear over uncertainty in the apparent finality of death. But, oh, Jesus changes. He changes that so dramatically. But a second thing, without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity finds a black hole. Without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity finds a black hole and vacuum that sucks purpose and meaning right out of life. In October of 2020, the Washington Post released an article entitled, COVID-19 makes us think about our mortality. Our brains aren't designed for that. The eerie, and I quote, uncomfortable feeling has been described as grief, as fear, or anxiety, but social psychologists have a more robust explanation. It is, and I quote, the existential anxiety caused by reminders of our own mortality. The article continues, the logical outcome is a kind of cognitive dissonance. You know all humans die. You know that you're a human, and yet somehow you don't believe that you yourself are going to die. This death avoidance, as they refer to it, isn't simply, and I quote, a psychological theory either. A neurological study is published in 2019 about mechanisms in the brain that avoid awareness of one's person or one's person's own mortality and that categorizes death as something unfortunate that happens to other people. In other words, we're wired to accept that death happens, just not to us existential shock is what happens when we truly realize that one day we will cease to exist and the world will go on without us. 
studies, this study, it found that some people, in light of those realities, they became more humble and grateful when they were reminded of their mortality, while others find their mortality causing them paralyzing anxiety and sending them running towards Amazon with a credit card in one hand and a martini in the other as the COVID era online shopping and record-breaking nationwide liquor sales have demonstrated for us. You see, without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity finds that death in a grave is a black hole in vacuum that sucks all purpose and meaning out of life. I mean, we all know that death is non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable reality for all of us. And yet we do our best to hide ourselves from seeing or thinking about it. And when it comes, we are shocked and angered that we're forced to feel its impact. And when we're forced to face it, we couch it in terms and with euphemisms to soften its blow. We say things like, they aren't really gone. They're a star shining in the sky watching over us now. Oh, they're still with us. They're alive in our hearts. Oh no, he's just bowling now with the big man upstairs. And each time there's a thunderstorm, we're reminded that he's still throwing strikes. Hey, for me personally, I've caught myself nodding as if in agreement at some of these statements that are made at funerals and gravesides. The silly sentiments that we hear often in those settings. They're statements that really all of us know are untrue and things that we don't actually believe. Oh, but he's one of God's precious little angels now. And we know that every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. We say them or not along with them because death is just so uncomfortable for us. We're grasping at something. Maybe the story caught your eyes. It did mine when this past month, the headlines read, and I quote, TikToker fakes his own death, then shows up at his funeral to teach his family a life lesson. David Byrton came up with the idea after becoming disheartened with how much his family had grown apart. The TikToker, who has more than 165,000 followers, then made a grand appearance at the ceremony being dropped off at his own graveside service in a helicopter. And I quote, what I see in my family often hurts me, he said, per the local newspaper. I never get invited to anything. Nobody sees me. We all grew apart. I felt unappreciated. That's why I wanted to give them a life lesson and show them that you shouldn't wait until someone's dead to meet up with them. As one might imagine, the stunt was met with some mixed reviews. Um, Surprisingly, not only, according to the funeral goers, there were some mixed reviews, even the TikToker himself had mixed feelings about his decision after seeing that only about half of his own family had shown up for his funeral. Without argument, it's a weird prank, but he pulled the prank because he knows what most of us know is often true, and that's that death and mortality and grief have a way of putting things back into some sort of a proper perspective, where our values and priorities are often realigned after we encounter death and sorrow and grief. However, we're still left, though, with this existential anxiety and cognitive dissonance, We're still left with what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is here trying to confront us with throughout the whole of his message. The paradox that he's worked so hard to express to us that your life is lived under the sun, but meaning and purpose for your life can't be found here under the sun. With an under the sun form of wisdom, 
that believes that there's nothing above or beyond the sun. There's no eternity outside of it or God beyond it. You can take this moment then, as we've often said in this series, you can take this moment of you seated here today, zoom all the way out to see each decision you make in your life, each person you impact, how much wealth you acquire, even how much wealth you give away, and maybe even see how many future generations feel your life and impact. We can zoom all the way out and none of it matters. Because your origin was inconsequential, your future in eternity is inconsequential because you're believing that there is none. And therefore, your life is of no consequence or significance. You're merely straightening deck furniture on a sinking Titanic. It may look better, but the sink is shipping. I'm sorry, this, the <laughs> ship is sinking. Glad you're still listening. In an under-the-sun form of wisdom, you cannot provide answers for life's biggest questions, and you are required to live your life in an intellectually inconsistent way knowing that there's no point or purpose in life, but choosing to live as if there were anyway. You see, without any real certainty about death or eternity, humanity only finds a black hole in a grave, a vacuum that sucks purpose and meaning out of life itself. If death is our ultimate end, then a world void of God is still yet to answer, then what is the point? Fill in the blank. Remember, as we've discussed in our series through Ecclesiastes, that either nothing matters at all or absolutely everything matters. And when Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the grave, he proved that there is life after death, and he proved that absolutely everything therefore matters. Because of Jesus' resurrection, our view of death and of life dramatically changes. Quoting from the book entitled Another Kingdom, Departing the Consumer Culture, it says this, it says, For the Christian, death is not a problem to be solved, but a state that animates life. See, humanity's trying to make sense of death, and there's one last thing I'll tell you or just point out to you before we transition to worship, and that's that without any real certainty about death and eternity, humanity, the third thing, bears the weight and pain of injustice. Humanity bears the weight and pain of injustice in our sin-splintered, broken world. You know, in my life and experience with other people, I've come to the conclusion that not everyone believes in heaven but everyone believes there ought to be a hell. Grief and sorrow of life are often doubled because we not only suffer deeply, but we also look around for justice and often we find none. Justice, or I'm sorry, injustice in life is painful enough. But if there's not any justice in death either, what's the twisting of the knife in the hearts of humanity? This is why we find ourselves saying and thinking, there might not be a heaven, but there needs to be a hell. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 reminds us that it is appointed for man once to die and after that to be judged. The Bible does not teach reincarnation, nor does it leave you with the bleak portrait of disintegration entering into nothingness. In fact, in chapter 11, what we just read in verse 7 he says it so beautifully where he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Quoting Oswald Chambers, he said, man is dust and divinity. The dust remains, but the divinity re returns to the divine. The Bible clearly teaches us then about a final judgment that takes place, which is sobering for all of us. But it's also what we actually believe needs to happen. Because if there's not some form of judgment, then injustice in life is compounded by injustice in death, and it is the twisting of the knife inside the hearts of humanity. The thing, though, that's so very sobering about it, the reality then of judgment, 
is that it is a perfectly just judgment that is ahead of us, which leaves all of us guilty. You see, the question we will enter as we cross the threshold of eternity's door is not into regard to whether or not we've murdered someone or committed adultery or stolen from others. Because as Jesus taught, we are guilty of what animates those globally condemned actions by having hatred already in our hearts, by having lustful thoughts running through our minds and envy coursing through our veins, we're already guilty. The question we must answer is not whether or not we're guilty because we are. The question we will answer is whether or not we have a Savior and substitute who has already paid the penalty for our sin, exchanging our sin for his righteousness and purity, leaving us then to be welcomed and rewarded as co-heirs with the Prince of Heaven. Oswald Chambers in his book, Shades of His Hand, he says it this way. He says, death transforms nothing. Every view of death outside the biblical view concludes that death is a great transformer. The Bible says that death is a confirmer. Instead of death being the introduction to a second chance, it is the confirmation of the first chance. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, the preacher observes something he says is just terrible. Because he says it this way, the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are just a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity, he says, which occurs on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, that there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. And I said that this is also vanity. The terrible thing he tells you here that he's seen in the world, in life under the sun, is that the just, the righteous, the virtuous, they're dealt a bad hand in life. While the wicked continue in their wickedness and they're seemingly kicking back and enjoying the ease of their life. All because, verse 14, he says, all of this is happening because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. I want to remind you today that there are laws at work in our universe. There's the law of conservation that from nothing comes nothing because nothing cannot create anything. There's a law of gravity that what goes up must come down. There's also the law of sowing and reaping. In the book of Galatians chapter 6, it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. In the law of sowing and reaping, I can promise you three things. The first is that you will reap the same. If you plant an apple seed, you will reap, not an orange tree, but an apple tree. You'll reap the same. You'll also reap more. It might be a tiny seed, but it'll grow as a massive tree. And the unfortunate thing that causes all of us To find ourselves so deceived so much in life is that you always reap later. There's a a delay before the reaping, whether it's judgment or blessing. You will reap what you sow. It might not be in this life. It might be in the next. You'll reap the same. You will reap more, but you'll reap it later. The warning is do not be deceived. See, the preachers observed again and again that there's no justice in life, and if there's no life after the grave, then there's no justice at all. But read what he tells you there in your Bible in chapter 11, verse 9. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
and let your hearts cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of the eyes. Just push pause for a second. When it says walk in the ways of your heart, he's not saying like, Follow your heart. The heart used to, in ancient cultures, not be thought of as the seat of emotion, but the seat of the intellect and the core central part of who you are. He's not saying, go live whatever you feel and think. Follow your heart. It's very different. He's saying, in light of all that you've learned thus far, take it all into account and then follow it. Be true to it. But know that for all of these, God will bring you into judgment. This is chapter 11, verse 10. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. You see, he was certain that the grave would not have the final word. Instead, God's throne would because judgment was awaiting us. You see, according to Jesus, our hope for justice and healing is not found in a set of principles anywhere. It's found in a person in Christ Jesus himself. I love how author Tim Chaddock in his book about Ecclesiastes, he wrote it this way. He says, but how When we are all guilty, can he do that? Can he offer us hope and justice and healing? The gospel tells us, and I quote, that he was denied justice so that we could be justified. He took pain and shame for our injustices so that we could have the comfort and joy of his righteousness credit to our account. That's why he went to the cross. So when we have the hope and promise, he will put all things right again. Justice one day will be done. Jesus is the world's judge. We are going to meet him eventually. It's just a question of whether we will meet him clothed in his righteousness or found in our own guilt and shame. Jesus came to bring life as well as ultimate justice. When the preacher asks, who can show us what will be after death? Jesus says, I will. I will show you. Let's land this plane together. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, observing... That it's not walking in the valley, but through the valley of the shadow of death. That the psalmist in Psalm 23 has confidence that, that his good shepherd would be there with him even through that valley. When he says, we go through the dark tunnel of death and emerge into the light of immortality. We do not die. We do but sleep to wake in glory. Spurgeon says, death is not the house, but the porch. Not the goal, but the passage to it. Whereas the Apostle Paul had said it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Just think about this. I don't know if you've been to funerals by people who have the hope of Jesus and then funerals and memorials for those who do not. But there's a startling, massive contrast, isn't there? Between the funeral of someone who lived a life with an under-the-sun mentality that this is all that there is and there's nothing above or beyond it. When people gather around to remember and memorialize and to give some hope or peace, there's not much of anything that can be said. There's no comfort to offer. If all that is seen is all that there is, then all is lost. There's nothing of meaning or value for anyone to even say or share. They can reflect and say, well, I'm grateful for this or for that. But there's no real hope that's given. And then it serves for everyone as a bleak reminder an affirmation of what they already thought was true, that death is the end. But what a contrast, if you've ever been in one of those gatherings, to then be in a gathering for people who are remembering and memorializing someone who lived a life of faith. What a contrast when we gather to talk about our faith in the one above and beyond the Son, who've placed their faith in a risen Savior, 
You see, because we have something that cannot be earned or purchased or inherited. We have what could only be received as the precious free gift from heaven to us, given from above the sun in the form of a son. We have Jesus, a Savior. A Savior who, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us, is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for you. Oh, we know that death has a way of putting life in perspective. But you need to remember that an empty tomb puts death into perspective as well. You see, a grave does not get the final word. God does. A God that if trusted in life will receive us in the hour of our death. And if he is taking care of death for you, humanity's worst fear and eternal enemy, will he not also care for you in this life? And is he not also worthy of your trust and love today? So, Father, we're thankful that even in light of the, the darkest of shadows, the most bleak of valleys that we'll, we'll pass through, we're thankful that we know that you go with us. We're thankful that we know that we pass through only a shadow because, Jesus, you took the substance of death. Jesus, I'm thankful that what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica rings true in our, in our ears that when we sorrow at those who sleep, we do not sorrow as a world void of hope sorrows, for we have hope in the resurrection. We have a living hope in a resurrected Savior, Jesus. We have proof. Jesus, I pray that that would be a comfort, as Paul wrote to them, that we could comfort one another with these words that death is hard and unavoidable, that it's painful, that suffering loss is hard. But it is not a destination. It is just a passageway to the place where we will meet you and be embraced by you. Jesus, I pray for people who are here just as observers or listening even in the future just as observers, just thinking this, this all through, that Jesus, today they would place their faith in you that they would find in death, not fear or terror or an end, but Jesus, that they would find through death life, life on the other side of a grave with you, Jesus. That they right now would express their repentance in their faith, saying, Jesus, I know that I need you because I am guilty. And when I stand before you, I deserve judgment. But Jesus, I receive the free gift given from above the Son in the form of a Son. I receive Jesus, you, who took my place, died, and rose again. Jesus, move in hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.